I think there's a misperception that organic farmers themselves are absolutely opposed to all genetic tinkering. I think uh, many of them are kind of very enamored and interested with genome editing. It's really the marketing organizations and this whole, you know, fight for market share. Welcome to Croptastic, the Interplant podcast where your host, Shelley Aronov, explores the global future of agriculture and food. This episode, we're joined by Dr. Pamela Ronald, a professor in the Department of Plant Pathology and the Genome Center at the University of California, Davis, and a member of the Innovative Genomics Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Ronald is also the author of Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming Genetics and the Future of Food. She joins Shelley to talk about her work using genetics to help feed the world and the potential that genetic engineering has for the future of agriculture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cryptastic, the podcast by Interplan. Today's guest is Professor Pam Ronald, who's a professor of the Department of Plant Pathology and the Genome Center at UC Davis and co-author of Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetics, and the Future of Food. Pam, it's so great to have you, have you here today with us. Oh, it's great to be here. So as you're here, let's start at the beginning, and then we'll definitely spend some time talking about genetic engineering, which is something that you're a huge uh, advocate of. But okay. can you talk to me about what do you think, how are we doing in farming? What do you think is the state of our farming industry, whether in, in countries like the US or South America or in developing countries? What are we doing well? What do we need to change? So, um, well, the state of farming, it's it's hard to address because every farmer does something slightly different and they have uh, different people they're trying to uh, satisfy, to feed, different profit, profit uh, motives. Some farmers are only making enough food to support themselves and their family. So it's very hard to generalize, impossible to generalize. But I, I think it is really exciting. There's so many new approaches, genetic technologies, and also uh, a lot more communication and collaboration. Um, than there was, say, 50 years ago. So I think, uh, and a lot more awareness of the importance of conserving soil fertility and using conserving land and water. So I think things are going in the right direction. And I think that's a really good point. Right? At the end of the day, a lot of the times on our podcast, we talk about soybean and corn and very large commercial farms, but there's so many type of, uh, there are so many types of farmers out there that have different needs. Can you talk through some of the work that you do on genetic engineering and what do you think are the more exciting developments? What are the possibilities there? So we have been, so I do a lot of genetic engineering and genome editing in my lab research environment. That's a pretty standard technique for us as a method of gene discovery. Uh, I've had the privilege of collaborating with researchers at the International Rice Research Institute and, and other groups to develop a rice variety that can withstand submergence. And this has been really important for farmers in uh, Bangladesh and Eastern India. And the reason is that as the climate changes, there is um, increased risk of flooding. And so most rice varieties do well in standing water, but the rest will die if they're submerged, completely submerged for more than three days. So we were able to isolate a gene that confers robust submergence tolerance, and it allows the plant to survive two weeks of flooding. 
So my colleagues at the International Rice Research Institute were able to breed this uh, gene into varieties favored by farmers using marker-assisted breeding, which is another Mm -hmm. modern genetic uh, technique. And uh, farmers have been able to um, really uh, increase their yield, about a 60% yield advantage uh, compared to conventional varieties. So it's been really exciting boon to farmers. Do you find that it's more challenging to distribute the seeds because they're just not as established distribution networks as there are for selling seeds? No, there there are very established um, seed distribution networks, and these are through the international centers. And in particular, the International Rice Research Institute has been working with farmers and, and national breeding organizations in, in diverse countries for many, many years. So this is a nonprofit sector. And one reason this project went so smoothly is that when my colleagues developed the, the rice at the International Rice Research Institute, they immediately were able to do field tests in Bangladesh and India mm-hmm. with the Katak Rice Research Institute in Eastern India and the Bangladeshi Rice Research Institute. So there was already a very established uh, collaboration. And then the national breeding centers are a well-known resource for farmers in those areas. So that's um, that's been really exciting to see. So last year, more than 6 million farmers are, are, are growing the rice. That's incredible. And it sounds like just a solution to a really acute problem that they have. Have you had the chance to interact with some of the farmers that have gotten the seeds and planted those crops? Yeah, we, the whole team visited in 2008, which was uh, really terrific, I think, for all of us to be together. So we had the breeders at the International Rice Research Institute that led the breeding. That's my colleague, Dave McKill, who's also emeritus professor here at UC Davis, as well as our colleagues at the Bangladeshi Rice Research Institute. Uh, the Katak Rice Research Institute and the farmers. So we had this really wonderful field day where their farmers came um, to a big tent that they put up uh, in a farmer's field out in the country. And we were able to um, learn from them and, and them from us. And they were really, it was for me, just wonderful to see how excited they were about the rice. It sounds like it's going to be a great experience to see it in the hands of the actual farmers. So Pam, you... Obviously, you're someone that's a proponent of GMOs and you speak about them often in public. Can you talk a little bit about your perception of how we got here and and where really are we when it comes to perception of consumers around GMOs? Yeah, sure. I mean, I tend not to use the term GMO because that's part of the problem, you know, the public doesn't. I completely get it. it. By the way, my scientists right? hate when I use that term. My scientists hate when I use that term. They're like, "Oh yeah, genetic engineering. Do not use GMOs." I'm like, "I get it. I get it." You're well, right. the reason, and the reason is the term GMO. It just means something different to every person, and right, there's not a really good understanding of how plants are are bred, and of course, everything we eat is genetically improved using some method. So I prefer to talk about specific traits, and I think that really helps advance the discussion because once someone you're talking to can have a better understanding of the problem faced by the farmer and the particular crop that's been engineered to address that problem, that 
makes it really does advance the discussion. And so like the classic example is BT eggplant, which most consumers in the United States don't don't know about. And eggplant, I'm sure you know, but I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, please, please explain what it is. Yeah, eggplant is um, the most important vegetable crop in India and Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, farmers spray their crops with insecticides several times a week to control a very serious insect pest. And if they don't do this, they lose much of their crop to the pest. And these um, chemical insecticides um, can be harmful to families that are growing the crops. So a number of years ago, uh, a collaboration between Cornell and uh, Bangladeshi researchers developed an eggplant that expresses a bacterial protein called BT, uh, which is commonly used in the United States by organic farmers to control insects. And farmers have um, now been growing this BT eggplant for five, six years and have seen a dramatic reduction in chemical insecticide applications, almost down to zero. And they're able to increase their income. There's less uh, chemical poisoning. So it's mm-hmm. it's really a fantastic example. And I think when um, consumers that aren't farmers hear about these specific examples, it makes a lot more sense. Whereas if you just talk about GMOs grown by farmers, it's just too vague and it's it's meaningless and it and it leaves a lot of opportunity for disinformation to jump in there and create some uh, really scary scenario that is uh, make-believe. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think another one that's top of mind right now is greening with citrus, right? I mean, this is the perfect opportunity to resolve a problem that we have no solution for, yet genetic engineering has a solution for it. And as far as I understand, there is a, there is a genetic engineered variety that is resistant to the disease. I just wonder how fast will it get to market because of all the challenges around it. Yeah. The the other thing that I found was really interesting about you is uh, when you present that you're a geneticist and your husband's an organic farmer and you guys uh, obviously get along and talk about this topic a lot. So I wonder, I mean, usually within the circles of organic farming, there's just no conversation about genetic engineering. Is that something that you find could be different in the future? Could it be part of that system? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think our experience is that farmers are always happy to talk about farming and seed. The issue is really more sort of the marketing organizations that are trying to create a narrative. Um, And organic farmers have a negative incentive to learn about genetically engineered crops or even talk about it because they're not allowed to grow it. And so it's it's very interesting, whereas, you know, our friends that are farmers are happy to learn about it and talk about it. It's not something they're going to talk about on their website as, oh, you know, if you're not an organic farmer, this might be another approach because they would, it's not going to help their, uh, their company. Um so I, I think there's a misperception that organic farmers themselves are absolutely opposed to all genetic tinkering. I think uh, many of them are kind of very enamored and interested with genome editing. It's really the marketing organizations and this whole, you know, fight for market share. 
What do you think is the incentive then for the marketing organizations? Well, if you're trying to sell an organic product, it's helpful to to demonize other types of products. I mean, that's just business, I I think. Um, and so, Someone has to be excluded in order for this to be exclusive. Yeah. And what's a little bit sad is organic farming grew out of a really fantastic idea and approach, which is to reduce the use of chem- chemical products mm-hmm. in agriculture. And so... In a normal world, um, you would see a lot of support for uh, crops like BTA plant because farmers in Bangladesh, they can't afford to buy these expensive organic BT pesticides and they can't even access them. So they have another approach which which uh, achieves the same goal, which is drastically reducing chemical sprays. And so... It's really fantastic. It's really complementary to the organic approach where you're spraying the insecticides and the genetic approach is to express that um, protein in the crop itself. What are the what are the solutions or the, the problems that you're excited to solve in the future using these tools? What do you think are the more acute things that we have to solve for, especially with climate change and, and having to feed more people over time? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many challenges, but there are a lot of approaches. I mean, we have pests and pathogen, as always, and these populations of pests and pathogens are going to change, spread. Some of them hopefully will die out, but they're certainly going to be changing as the climate changes. And truthfully, it's a little bit hard to predict what pests and pathogens, where they're going to move, how they're going to change. But we do have tools. Um, There's been numerous reports of using genome editing to create a resistant crop by tinkering with a a gene that's already been characterized to be important for resistance. There are reports, nothing in the field yet. um, So I don't know how robust these uh, approaches are, but for drought tolerance, there's a lot of work and drought tolerance to develop crops that are more tolerant of drought. I mean, we have the, the flooding tolerance has been really helpful for farmers. Um, there's scientists working on changing root structures to um, perhaps sequester more carbon in the soil. So this is a huge amount of very exciting research happening um, right now. Something else that I keep thinking about, because you come from the academic world, where the problems that you're trying to solve are going to help a lot of people that maybe can't really afford to pay for seeds. What do you think, how do you bridge this issue or complexity where it's it's easy to develop crops, develop technologies for crops like soybean and corn, crops that could be generating a huge revenue stream and be sold to farmers in, in countries that can pay how do you get resources to develop crops for people that really need them and can't afford to pay for them? Well, we really need to support public breeding efforts, and um, that is going to always be very essential. And whether that's um, through the USDA supporting public breeding efforts in the United States or uh, foundations and supporting efforts in less developed countries, it's it's just always going to be important. And so the way our uh, project moved forward in India and Bangladesh was really uh, with support. We had um, a USDA grant 
that a couple of USDA grants that supported this, a USAID grant. And then my colleagues um, at the International Rice Research Institute, they have funding um, through um, the Institute, which is nonprofit funding originally from the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations. And then we were really fortunate the Gates Foundation stepped up to help bulk up and distribute the seed to farmers. So the entire project was in was supported by nonprofit funds, and we were fortunate that those funds were available. Yeah, and I think that's really important, right? We have to continue to develop solutions, not just for the major crops, effectively even more so over time for, for all the different crops that we have growing around the world. And there's collaborations too. Like I think uh, Golden Rice is a really wonderful example of a collaboration that initially some of the technologies, most of the work was done in the nonprofit. All of the work was done in the nonprofit sector supported by the Rockefeller Fowler Foundation, um, at least the initial work. But then Syngenta helped um, later on by contributing um, some technologies. Then when it was apparent that it was going to be really very, very important for helping um, children that were suffering from blindness or or at risk of death, death because of lack of vitamin A, Syngenta released their technology. So it's in the nonprofit sector. So those types of collaborations are really important too, where you might make an advance in a for-profit company, but often those companies are not, you know, they they don't have ability to make money anyway for uh, rice impoverished um, workers. So often that technology is a collaboration that develops to share the technology. I think that's going to continue to be very important as well. Yeah. And I, I think another aspect that hopefully is happening anyways, is that over time, it's getting cheaper and faster to develop these kind of crops, right? It used to take a really long time. And as the technology is developed over time and the tools are evolving, I've seen us really reducing the amount of time that it takes to create a new trait. So hopefully that will help uh, bring this into more and more applications as the cost goes down. Yes, that's true too. Um, would you also, um, we mentioned your book in the beginning, but we'd love to hear more about the book. Yeah, sure. So this was a project that was developed really quite a number of years ago. And um, my husband and I, of course, read news articles about organic farming and genetics. And we just felt that there was not accurate information in much of the media outlets. And at that time, we were very upset about uh, disinformation about the Iraq war, actually, and felt like, okay, we're obviously not defense policy experts, but maybe we can do something in the realm of agriculture to really try to combat the misinformation surrounding these technologies. And so that was the motivation for writing the book. So we spend a lot of time um, distinguishing for the reader the difference between fact and fiction and bringing readers into what it's like to be an organic farmer and, you know, the challenges of being an organic farmer, and the fun of being an organic farmer, and the same with um, genetic uh, approaches. So we have a lot of descriptions of our farm and our and my lab and Raul spending time with his students and visitors and um, and then we we address um, some of the big questions that consumers have about farming in general or genetic uh, new genetic technologies. And we just we had a second edition a few years ago. I think it was 
2018. And then we have a translation coming out in French just next next month. So we're excited about that. That is exciting. You're obviously a very accomplished uh, scientist and you've already solved several problems. What are you working on next? What what else is on your list to to accomplish? Well, we're we're at the very beginning of my career. I was very interested in plant microbe communications. I got very interested when I was a college student. I did my senior thesis on um, the recolonization of Mount St. Helens by mycorrhizal fungi. So this was a mountain that blew up when I was an undergraduate and it, everything was just pulverized. And so I did a study with a local professor going up to the mountains and uh, collecting soil samples and planting pines and onions to examine if they could form mycorrhizal associations, um, which are um, fungal species. So it's really interested in this idea that plant and microbes could communicate and send signals back and forth. And I continue to work on that. We have a project in my lab that we've been working on for many years, which is um, we study a receptor in rice plants. It's also variants are present in other plants that interacts with a small molecule that's secreted by bacteria. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to understand what that signaling system is. And um, we probably, I will keep working on that my, my entire career. We still have many questions like why is the bacteria producing this molecule? What exactly, what benefit is it getting um, from producing this molecule? Because in, if the plant has a gene that recognizes it, it encodes a receptor that can recognize it, the plant's resistant. So the bacteria don't have any advantage, but in the absence of the resistance gene, the bacteria can evade the immunity and cause disease. Uh, so we are, um, so it's sort of this idea, people now are aware of COVID variants, how these variants evolve and can overcome the immune system. So that's the kind of thing we're studying um, in these plant pathogenic bacteria. Right, that's fascinating. So it, with this um, communication be, between the fungus and the plants, is your goal to actually be able to then, I don't know, encrypt messages in the fungi so that you can communicate with the plants or no? Is it too far? Well, we're, it's actually, I sort of melded things together. I used to study the fungi. Now we're studying bacteria. And mm -hmm. one of our goals now is to engineer the plant receptors. So it recognizes more variants of the pathogenic bacteria. Right now it only recognizes one certain variant. And so we want to broaden that resistance by um, doing some kind of engineering to the receptor to make a more broad spectrum resistance. Oh, I understand and that. That's yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, Pam, your work is really admirable and, and just fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for taking uh, time and uh, good luck with your work. Thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of Croptastic. Thank you again to Dr. Pamela Ronald for joining us today. You'll find a link to her book, Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming Genetics and the Future of Food, in the episode description. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter account at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening.